and we're going to get into God's Word. So, Father, I thank you tonight that you are in our presence. You're here, and, Father, even as you're willing to speak to us collectively, I believe that each one of us is going to hear your voice individually. And, Father, there's things in our lives right now that are on our hearts, that are affecting uh, the joy and the peace that you want to bring into our lives. And I just pray tonight that you will speak to us, and this tonight will be a night of liberation, a, light, a night of deliverance, a night of freedom, a night of hope, a night of encouragement. Father, as we hear your word, Lord, may it reorient us to really experience the path towards happiness. And that's something we all want. We all want to be a happy person. I pray tonight that as we hear your approach to happiness, Lord, may it overwhelm us and reorient us to the right perspective. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew's Gospel. We just, we've been doing a series of messages on the Beatitudes, very familiar passage in the Bible. Jesus uh, shares these words. Now, I know some of you realize this, but I've had the privilege in the last 15 years of going to India 11 times. The church actually, in our missions budget, sends me. I go, I teach uh, Christian developing leaders there. I've been doing it. And so I've, I've taught a lot of people. And the organization we've worked with, and some of you know Dr. Matthew Thomas, uh, when I started there in 2003, they had about 900 churches in their association of churches. Now they have 1,800 churches. Isn't that amazing? So God has really been working in the nation of India. But when I went to the first time, you can imagine the culture shock, right? Has anybody been to a mission field experience? And let, let me tell you, it's unlike what you and I are used to living in North America. Mark came with me. I think he was, you know, Mark had never left Canada. I took him to India. Can you imagine? And we messed up on a flight to, on top of it. And we ended up st- uh, coming an extra day early to a city. We were trying. To, we're in this little airport trying to find accommodations for ourselves, and nobody spoke English. We had a lot of fun, right, Mark? We survived that experience. But on my first trip, uh, they had a church picnic. And I was invited on this church picnic. And how many know that the games that uh, we play in Canada are unlike the games they play in India? And so they had a race that day, and I never saw anything like it. The object of the race was not to see how fast and how far you could ride. It was actually to see how you know, long you could balance yourself without moving forward. And they had a certain timeline. And so when the, when the gun went off to start the race, nobody moved. I mean, it was a really unusual experience. And so you were disqualified if you put your foot down on the ground or fell off your bike. Or, you know, the loser was the, was the person who went the furthest. And the winner was the person who ha- didn't have to move very far. So can you imagine if they would have said to me, Hey, Paul, why don't you join the race and never told me the rules? Could you imagine what it would have been like? They said, here's the course. You know, and, and just imagine some of us now, we're in the race and the gun sounds, and man, we just start pedaling as hard and as fast as we can possibly do it. We're running out of breath. We're sweating. We're delighted. We're looking back. Nobody's really moving, and we're flying, you know, right? We're thinking, wow, we're winning. We're going to break the record. You can just imagine thinking, this is so fantastic. Don't let up, right, Kevin? Keep pushing, man, harder, faster, longer. And at last you hear the gun that ends the race, and you're so delighted. You are unquestionably the winner. You left everybody back there at the starting gate, right? Except for you're the biggest loser. (laughs) You know, right? Because you didn't understand what the rules were. 
And isn't that so true in life? We think we have an understanding of what life's all about, and so often we end up messing up and we shoot for the wrong things in life. You know, Jesus gives us the rules how to live life, and yet we totally miss it. The finish line is actually painted on the other side of our death when we'll stand before the throne of Almighty God. And that's when we'll find out who the big winners are and who the big losers are. And our culture has a wrong understanding of what really makes a successful, satisfying, meaningful, and happy life. You know, now, the tragedy, I think, is that so many people discover this too late. I was reminded of a story by Scott Winnick when he was... Uh, told about it years ago. He was telling what was going on in New York City. How many have ever been to New York City? I've had that privilege too. It's a great place. You're in New York City. It's got millions of people. It's it's just concrete jungle lights and, you know, just typical big city. And Scott was sharing how at the time that he told the story, there were 8 million cats and 11 million dogs. Well, that's a lot of creatures, right? And how many know eventually they pass away and you have to dispose of the body? But you can't just go to your backyard or just awful little ways and bury the body, right? You know, so the city authorities decided, listen, we're going to help people with their, you know, poor pet that died. And so they, they created a service and for $50, somebody would come and pick up the carcass of this dead animal. Well, you know, in New York, there's a lot of enterprising people. And there was a woman that decided to start a business. She said, listen, she put an ad in the paper. She says, I can actually get rid of your unwanted carcass for $25. That's half price. How many know people pay attention to that? And so she had takers on that. And what she would do was she would go into the Salvation Army and buy a suitcase, cost about two bucks, pick up the dead animal, and then jump on the subway. And then she would act like she wasn't paying close attention to the suitcase. And sure enough, somebody would take the suitcase. Now you can imagine when that somebody opened up that suitcase and thought that they were getting some sort of a prize, right? They were absolutely shocked. You know, think about that. A lot of us are kind of like the New York thieves. We're chasing after happiness, and we grab what we think is going to give us happiness, but all we, but however, what we get doesn't quite deliver. And isn't that true of so many people today in our culture? You know, we've pursued something, and in the end, it's left us empty. And that's sad. You know, the problem with happiness is that it's never a good goal. You know, it's actually a great byproduct of a greater goal. And the greater goal that would really summarize what life is really all about is to really get to know God. And if we really get to know God, what we're going to find out is we are far happier and we're far more satisfied. We have more meaning and more significance in our life because we get to know Him. As a matter of fact, Augustine said it this way. He said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until it finds rest in you. And isn't that the truth? You know, there's always a longing. You see, I believe there's a longing in our life because deep down inside, every one of us wants to be understood. Every one of us wants to be accepted, wants to be cared for. Deep down inside, what we really want is to be loved. 
And we want to be loved unconditionally. And there's no human being that can meet the longings of each of our souls. But God can actually meet that. And God designed us so that you and I were meant to be in union and communion with him so that the deepest needs of our lives could be met in him. Jesus expresses the idea this way. He says, blessed, and I put little parentheses, happy, because the word blessed and happy are very synonymous terms. I don't know if you realize that. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now that word blessed is a Hebrew word that literally means that we're on the right path. We're actually following the right means to the right ends. He said, when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, that's when you will be filled, or that's when you will be satisfied. You'll find meaning and satisfaction in life. You know, how many see that there's kind of a paradox in this, in this uh, beatitude? Don't you think it's interesting it's the hungry people that are satisfied? Wouldn't you think it's the people that had eaten that would be satisfied? Because no, it's the hungry people that are satisfied. You know, so what does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, one writer, Alfred Plummer, says, to believe oneself to be in possession of righteousness is like the Pharisee in the, in the parable. How many of you remember the parable where there was a, a sinner and a Pharisee, and the Pharisee comes before God and he says, I thank God I'm not like this guy over here. You know, he's the sinner. You know, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I have. I mean, he was self-righteous. And what uh, Plummer is telling us here is that's a fatal understanding. You know, there's a lot of people that think they're okay. They're in, they're in tight with God, but the reality is they're not. To know oneself to be in want of or to need it is not enough, to need righteousness. No, one must feel the want of it and have a passionate and persistent longing for it. In other words, that you and I never come to that place where we think we've arrived. There's no sense of arrival in this situation. This is a journey, folks. As a matter of fact, to hunger and thirst after righteousness extends beyond the personal desire to do what's right in God's sight. It's even more significant than that. Craig Bloomberg says it this way. It goes on to include a desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. That's what it means to pursue righteousness. I want God's will to be done. That's what he's saying here. Again, God promises that in his purposes will be accomplished and that his justice will eventually reign. So, we, we should have a want for more than just having God in our lives. That's what I'm getting at. You know, a lot of Christians just have that. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I have God in my life. No, no, it's more than that, folks. What we need to understand, we have to get to the place where we actually long for what God wants. We actually want to do God's will. We're actually a person that gets up and says, you know what, it's not what I want today. Let me give it real practical to us because a lot of us, we get up in the morning, we got things on our minds, there's things to do. We gotta go to work, you know, some young people go to school, you know, whatever we're involved in, whatever our agenda for that day is. I gotta go visit the doctor, I gotta go to the dentist. You know, we have an agenda, isn't that true? And a lot of times in our lives, we have this agenda, and then things don't start working out the way we want them to. Has anybody had that experience? Your whole day goes sideways. Anybody had a day that gone sideways on you? Okay, so I'm talking to the right group. I'm just checking, you know, because you guys are real quiet tonight. So, you know, you're going along in your day, and all of these things are happening to you. And what does it normally do when you've had your day really planned out, you've got a tight schedule, and a whole bunch of stuff starts coming at you that you didn't have in your schedule? How many here get a little frustrated? Anybody get a little irritated, a little, you know, you're, you're saying, I'm just not getting the things done that I wanted to get to do today. Anybody relate to this? Am I talking to the right crowd? Okay, so... 
think about it. You get up in the morning, you're a Christian, and you're the person who's seeking God's righteousness. This is what you're thinking. You get up and you say, Lord, we're, we're in this day together. I know I have these things that need to be done, but here's the deal. It's not what I want, it's what you want. It's not my agenda, it's your agenda. I have no idea what you're really planning for my day, and I don't even know who you're going to bring into my life today. You know, people might come crashing into my schedule. I have no idea who they are and why they're in there, but you do. And so I need to be more open to that and not so frustrated and resentful when these things start happening to me. As a matter of fact, I need to start thinking, you know, where are you in this situation, God, and what do you really want me to say and do? Because I only want to do what you want me to do. I only want to say what you want me to say. And so all of a sudden, it changes the way I see what's happening in my day. I begin to see the orchestration of God in my life because I'm seeking His righteousness. I'm seeking what is right in his eyes. I'm seeking what is his will and not my will. And it changes my whole attitude toward what's happening in that day. You know, it's a lot better. That's exactly right. We're a lot less uptight. Now, I want to just say another thing that we we'd sometimes fail to understand when we're reading our Bibles. Because we read words and we put the meaning of that word on every place we read it. And I'm going to pick on righteousness, because that's a classic example. You know, when the Apostle Paul uses the word righteousness, what he's really talking about is what God is doing on our behalf. It's, it's his righteousness that he's giving to us. It's He's imputing to us his righteousness. It's not that we're right before God. He's giving us what he's done right before God. And he's giving that as a gift to us so that you and I can be in a right standing with God. And theologians call that justification. And it's just as if I'd never sinned. God has now created the context where I'm in a right relationship with God. How many think that's a beautiful gift? That, that's, that's what we celebrate. And a lot of times we take that meaning, Paul's meaning of righteousness, and we apply it everywhere we see it. Well, Matthew now has said something out of the mouth of Jesus. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But he's not just talking about that. Matthew has something far more significant in mind when he's using the word righteousness. His idea also includes what I've just described earlier. It's actually to be, it's the idea of experiencing all that God has for me. It's not just, I'm, I'm a Christian now. It's more than that. It's actually, what does God want from me since I'm a Christian? It's the righteousness that we would call, in, in theologically, sanctification. It's, it's a far more comprehensive idea. So he, what he's talking about is we're seeking after, really, God's will, meaning, purpose, agenda for our lives. Are you following? How many are beginning to understand? It's a little more in-depth, and there's a little more to it. And... Let me just, uh, I'm going to quote uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the very context in which we find it insists that righteousness here includes not only justification, but sanctification also. In other words, the desire for righteousness, the act of hungering and thirsting for it, means ultimately the desire to be free from sin in all of its forms and its every manifestation. It's a desire to be free. It's a desire to be holy. It's a desire to be whole. It's a desire to be exactly like Christ. That's the aim. That's the goal. That's the purpose. So I'm shooting for this major goal in my life. See, most of us, we have these what I would call paltry goals in life. Oh, I just want to be comfortable. I I want to be secure. You know, I want to have a significant relationship. I mean, these are the kind of goals we have. Let me just tell you something. They're, They're too small. 
Our goal should be, I want to be like God. I want to be God-like. I want to be free from sin. I want, to, I want to do the will of God in my life. I want to fulfill His agenda and His purposes and the design that He created. What did He have in mind when He made me? How many think that's a far more significant, a far larger goal? Much better. I agree. Way better. And that's what God's looking for. As a matter of fact, I would, I'm going to encourage you now because the only way to attain it is not in our own strength. Thank God for that. Because we would all flunk. I can guarantee you. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The only way that we can be righteous is by trusting in Christ. And that's true not only for our initial salvation, but that's also true for how we're going to pursue this righteousness. We can only do this in the strength of Christ. We can only do this by saying, Lord, I can't do this, but you can help me to do this. And the Apostle Paul says it to the Corinthians that Christ is our righteousness. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says it this way, it is from him, from God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. And then he says, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. In other words, I love this. Do you realize that Christ is what makes you and I right with the Father? It's Christ that helps you and I become like the Father. It's Christ that delivers us from the power of sin in our life and the power of Satan. It's Christ that does this. Hallelujah. We need to understand that. How encouraging is that? So, I always think it's interesting when we look at these Beatitudes. There's actually an order to it. You know, this is week four. Think about what we've said earlier. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When I preached on that, I said, this isn't talking about people who are poor financially. This is people who are recognized their spiritual poverty and they recognize their need for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they're the ones that inherit the kingdom of heaven. The next one says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. You know, we, a lot of times we, we think that's mourning over the loss of a loved one. No, that's, that's true, but that's not what this text is teaching. This text is teaching, blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness and recognize that they are poor in spirit. They need God's forgiveness. Then it goes on to say, blessed are the meek, for they're the ones that inherit the earth. And I pointed out last week, the word earth there in Hebrew is also the word land. And how many know in the Old Testament, Israel was promised the land. And so it's basically, blessed are the meek, those people who learn how to trust God. They're the ones that inherit God's promises for their lives. But now we're in the fourth beatitude, and it says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they're the ones that are going to be satisfied. They're the ones that are going to experience the fullness that Jesus is promising when he says, I've come to give you life, and that more abundantly. That's the kind of life that God wants to basically give to each and every one of us. But a lot of times we don't believe that. You know, we're, we're like the Father. I believe in Jesus, but help my unbelief. I'm not appropriating what God has for my life, and that's what God wants to give us. You know, I think a lot of people assume, well, first of all, I'll say that these characteristics, how many know, are not natural. They're supernatural and come from the working of God's Spirit in our lives. And until we discover our own bankruptcy, our own inability to live like this, we don't seek help. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a natural outflow to a life that has come to the end of itself. I can't do this. God goes, I know. And that's when you move over and say, okay, God, can you help me? God says, absolutely. I've been waiting for you to ask. Isn't that beautiful? You know? So how does one find satisfaction in life? Well, Jesus suggests it comes only by being dissatisfied. How many think that's a paradox? You know? You're only going to search for something if you feel there's a lack. I need this. 
you know, and too often we assume that we will be happy when everything in life is working for us and when everything is going our way. How many go, that's usually what I think. I've got all my ducks in a row, now I can relax, you know. I've got it, every, everything's mapped out, everything's sorted out, everything's working out. Now I'm going to be happy. And you know what? That's a deception. Jesus said the people who have everything going for them are generally bored and dissatisfied with life. Isn't that true? I mean, think about it. The people who are famous, the people who have all the money in the world, you know, they're the people who are going, I don't know what to do with my time, I'm bored out of my mind, you know, and they're the ones that get in all kinds of trouble. You know, isn't it interesting, you know, people envy celebrities but don't envy them, you know, because they're not happy. Most of them are totally dissatisfied with their lives. And yet we're all trying to get what they've got and yet they're miserable. That's the wrong goal. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You're shooting for the wrong thing. So what should we be shooting for? Well... I want to give you a different way of looking at life. And I'm going to come back to King David. We're going to go to Psalm 63. In Psalm 63, I'm going to briefly give you three elements that create satisfaction and happiness. How would you like to say, you know what, I I, I want to have that byproduct of living a meaningful, satisfied, and happy life. Anybody here say, I'm up for that? Anybody interested in that? Just a few of you. Okay, the rest of you can go to sleep right now. Because I'm going to tell these other guys, this is how you do it. And I want to just say this, that so often when we read these Psalms, we have no conception of the background story. But I want to fill you in on the background story. In Psalm 63, this is taken when David is fleeing from his son, who's rebelled against him, wants to murder him and take over everything that David has worked for. How many go, that's probably not a good moment in your life. Anybody here, you know, you have your kids totally unhappy with you, rather wishes you, you were dead, and just give me everything you have, and you can drop, you know, who cares what happens to you. This is the moment David is in. It's, this is the moment. This is the context. This is the wilderness experience. And you know, you know, it's one thing to be young and be in a wilderness. The challenge often is how will we handle the wilderness experiences of life. But when you're older and you've had everything, and you lose everything, that's a lot different wilderness experience. And that's what David is experiencing here. He's fleeing. You know, he doesn't know everything's going to be restored to him. When we read these stories, we go, that's no problem, David, you're going to come back anyways. He doesn't know that. He doesn't even know if he's going to live. It's in the context of that that Psalm 63 is written. It's an hour of great testing of faith. I want you to hear all of that. Because when I read this psalm, you go, it's hard to believe that David wrote this psalm in this context. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see is not so much David's plight and his flight. What you're going to see is rather David's passion. And that's what I'm getting at here tonight. David saw God as the one who satisfies regardless of his present condition. That's what we need to hear tonight. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at these elements that reflect happiness and satisfaction in life. Three of them. One, real quick. We need to make God our desire. David says, I want God, nothing more, nothing less. This is what I really want. I think the measure of a life is determined more by what is aimed at than what is achieved. We become what we aspire to. Okay? When our goal is God, regardless of what we achieve in the human arena, if your goal is God, it's going to elevate your life. And all of the supposedly insignificant things in life now take on an eternal significance. I can give somebody a cold cup of water in Jesus' name. That has eternal significance. Isn't that amazing? See, we're, we're all waiting for the big things. I get so tired of Christians, you know, we're all waiting for God's going to use me in a mighty way. Folks, 
That's so wrong in your thinking. Just start serving God in the little things. And all those little things become significant things. Do you know it's the little things in life that destroy relationships? It's not the big things. Usually we think it's the big things. No, it's a whole bunch of little things that eventually erodes, and then it becomes a big thing. See, let's just take care of the little stuff. That's what we need to understand. So when I'm serving God daily in a faithful way, and I'm just doing what needs to be done day by day, what, and I need to understand that when I'm doing this, everything I'm doing has eternal significance. And it has meaning because I'm doing it for Jesus. You know, you can go down to a homeless person and buy him a piece, you know, something to eat. And when you're sitting there, instead of looking at this person, you're just thinking, man, so wasted. What a messed up person. Why don't you look at that person and say, you know what? I'm buying a hamburger for Jesus today. It'll totally change how you feel in the moment. It'll change everything about what you're doing. You know, when you go visit somebody in the hospital, instead of thinking, oh, I'm going to visit Roger. He's not feeling good today. No, I'm going to visit Jesus today. You see, Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, when you've gone to the sick, when you've fed the homeless, you know, you've helped the homeless and you've given them food, he says, you're doing it for me. Start thinking that way, and it changes how you feel towards the people you're ministering to. You know, when they're complaining to you, I don't even listen to the complaint. I'm just thinking, I'm ministering to Jesus. It changes how I think about the situation. It gives life meaning and dignity. James Houston says, we live not so much through our achievements as through our desires. The successes we achieve do not last, but what we desire, that's what is immortal. You see, what I've discovered in life, I've had, I've had a lot of achievements in life. I'm not boasting, I'm just telling you that's true. And I can tell you, once you get there and you do it, you move on. That's it, you've done it. No big thing, you know. They don't keep playing the band for you forever. I can just guarantee you this. It's just not going to do. They don't have, every day is now a celebration because you've arrived at the pinnacle. It doesn't work that way. Okay, you're looking at what you did and you go, okay, great, let's move on. What's next? You know, like what's next in life? I mean, if you're looking for that to satisfy you, you're going to be constantly trying to achieve the next highest thing. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So it's not about achieving, it's about desire. And he says, desire is that throbbing pulse of human life. What we long for determines the scope of our experiences, the depths of our insights, the standard by which we judge, and the responsibilities by which we choose our values. Wow, that's pretty insightful, James. James Houston says that. You know, he's basically saying, this is what is defining us, is what we really long for. And I'm saying, the goal has to be great. As a matter of fact, I'm going to argue the goal begins with a certainty. Listen to what uh, David says here in Psalm 63. He says here, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, David was fleeing in a desert. I've been to that desert. It's, there's nothing there, you know. You can, it, 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 you know, water's a big issue in Israel. So he's saying, here I was, maybe he was physically thirsty, but then he takes that in his song and says, God, I'm longing for you just the way my body's longing for water. I have such a thirst for you. Now, where's David's focus in his trouble right now? It's on God. Now, let me ask you a question. Right now, you have a problem in your life. Where's your focus? Uh, yeah. Should be on God. Maybe yours is on God. That's where we want to get to. But for most people, where do you think their focus is when they're having a problem? On the problem, right? And how many know what that does is it saps our energy, it robs us of peace, it destroys our joy. Come on, how many can say that's true? 
you know, I'm filled with anxiety. I'm worrying. I'm fretting. Will I ever get better? You know, I'm, you know, was this going to take me in? Is this going to do me in? I mean, on and on it goes, right? David has a major problem. His son is trying to kill him. What's your, where's his head? God, you are my God. I'm earnestly seeking. His whole focus is away from the problem and it's on God himself. Is that amazing or what? I told you this is an amazing psalm. You know, maybe one reason we don't desire him is that we really don't know him very well. You know, that's, I'm really convinced of that. The more I get to know God, the more I go, man, you're just so amazing, God. You are the most amazing person I've ever met. You are so incredible. You are so beyond anything I've ever understood. You've dragged me through my whole life. You've been helping, assisting, uplifting, encouraging, instructing, edifying, building up, transforming. It is so amazing what you've been doing. Isn't that incredible? We need to understand that. And then the desire is based on past experiences. Look what David says. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Well, what is David saying? He says, God, your love to me is better than even life. Now, you know, every time I see the word faithfulness, steadfast love, you know, there's a word in the Hebrew language. I, I can even see it in my mind. I can see how it's written. Every time I see that word in Hebrew, I know exactly what it is. It's a word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. That's how we anglicize it, Englishize it. Okay, hesed. And, you know, I have a book that Jan actually gave me. Thank you, Jan. It's all based on one word, hesed. And, you know, scholars are trying to figure out how this word works because every time they see it in the Old Testament, they're, they're looking at it. Then translators have to make a decision how to translate you know, remember I said righteousness had a, a, a varied domain of meaning, you know? Same thing with the word said. But let me try to summarize what one scholar writes. Her name is Catherine Sankenfeld, and that's her book. And her book is entitled, you know, The Meaning of Hesed in the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> that's the name of her book. Okay, so I'm reading through, I've read through the whole book, and I'm sitting down here, and I've highlighted it. And so to give you an understanding of what David is saying here, you're going to love this, I'm going to summarize in her mind what this word means. She says, God fulfills his responsibility in freely giving personal acts of deliverance and protection. Okay? This word is full of deliverance. You've got to understand that. He is called upon to do hesed at a point when the supplicant has exhausted his human resources and there's no hope for a solution for the difficulty. Well, what is he saying? He's saying, once we get to the end of ourselves and we say, God, please, please, God, have mercy on me. God, show me your hesed. Show me your unfailing, unconditional love. Please bail me out. God goes, okay, I will. Is that amazing? You see, God wants to demonstrate his love for us. That's what it's about. It's this... This, this unconditional, this covenantal, this faithfulness of God to reach out and help us because you and I are incapable of helping ourselves. David says that love is better than life. Isn't that awesome? He says, God, your love is what delivers me. God, it's your love that sustains me in the most impossible situations. We should never question God's love. But we do. We hit a difficulty, go, God, where are you? Do you care about me, God? Why is this happening to me? Right? Isn't that kind of what we do? I'm just pointing that out. 
How do I know all this stuff? I've done it. I've got experience, you know. But now I go, oh, no, no. I've been here before. I know what's going on here. here. You're just waiting to show up, God. How many have ever felt like God was late? I've even pointed that out. Hey, the deadline is here, God. If you don't come through on this day, we're hooped. And you know, a lot of times what happens, we just blow through that date and nothing happens. He goes, that's not my t- deadline. That's yours. How many think that's amazing? But you know what I've discovered? I'm a little older now. I've discovered God is never late. He's always on time. He knows exactly what to do. Sometimes he's got to just change us. Sometimes he's going, you're just thinking about this the wrong way, you know? How many times we get worked up for nothing? Anybody here get worked up for nothing? Oh, my goodness. Do we ever get worked up for nothing, you know? But here's what I want to tell you. When you're a new Christian, you kind of question everything. But when you've been around for a while and God keeps pulling you out of this situation and that situation, after a while you get a little experience. And you go, I've been here before. I know what's going to happen here. God's going to show up again. And he does. And, you know, Israel, you ever notice how many times they keep recounting what God did? Anybody notice that? They always point you back to, you know, remember when we were slaves in Egypt? Remember when God parted the Red Sea? Remember when God wiped out the Canaanites? Oh, by the way, did you remember when God crushed the walls of Jericho? Oh, by the way, did you remember when the lion's mouths were shut? You and I need to know that there's a God in this universe, and he's able to do these amazing things on our behalf because he's a God of love. Hallelujah. We need to remind ourselves of these things over and over and over again. And here we are sweating bullets again. What's going to happen to me now? And I'm saying, hey, ho, hold it. Who are you serving? I'm serving the God that can shut the mouth of lions. I'm serving the God that the walls come down. I'm serving the God that parts Red Seas. What about you guys? Same God. Woo. Yeah. I told you, this is getting exciting. And you guys didn't even know this is all in the Beatitudes, right? You know, David's desire was reflected in his ability to praise God regardless of the circumstances. He says, I'm going to praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. You know, we're good at praising God when things work out. How about praising God when nothing's working? You know, Charles Spurgeon wrote in the 19th century, he's a great Baptist preacher, and he said this, Even when our hearts is rather desiring than enjoying, we should still continue to magnify the Most High, for His love is truly precious. And even if we do not personally, for the time being, happen to be rejoicing in it, we ought not to make our praises to God depend on our own personal and present reception of benefits. What's he saying? He's saying even when God's not doing anything right now, we should still be praising Him. He's still good. He's still loving. This would be mere selfishness. Even publicans and sinners have a good word for those who hands enrich them with gifts. It is the true believer only who will bless the Lord when he takes away his gifts or hides his face. That's why I like Job. <laughs> Job loses all his money. You know what Job says? Well, you gave it to me. Well, you want it back? Fine. You're still a good God. Hey, when he took his ten kids, this is when we freak out. You know, these are my kids. No, they're not. They're God's kids. They're on loan to you. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Job got down and said, hey, God, you wanted them back? Fine with me. You know, we got to start thinking differently, folks. You see, when you have a right mindset, you can handle all of the crazy stuff that goes on in life. Jesus said in the world, you're going to have trouble. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. What am I telling you? we got to stop get, getting in our mind that, you know, life's easy. Can we just divorce that thought out of our heads? 
Why don't we just start saying, you know what, God is good, and it doesn't matter what's happening in life, God's still good. I need to come to the place where I recognize I trust God, He's a loving God, and you know what, whatever happens, it's going to work out for good. i got to believe that. That's what Romans 8.28 teaches me. Right? All things work together for good to those who love God. Oh, but God, you don't know what I'm in. I go, yeah, I've been here before with people. I understand all of this stuff. Let me move on to the second thing that reflects happiness and satisfaction in life. Making God our delight. Do you know there's a difference between making God our desire and making God our delight? You say, what's the difference? One is something I'm aiming for. The other is I'm enjoying. As a matter of fact, the Shorter Westminster Catechism teaches simply this. The chief aim of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. Now, you know, a lot of us are being told, yeah, glorify God. We hear that a lot, right? I'm telling you tonight, enjoy God. Why don't you just enjoy Him? How many have ever felt like, you know, there's some people I love being with. I just enjoy their presence. Anybody here relate to that? You know, I just enjoy being with this person. You know, I'm I'm fortunate. I have a wife who actually loves me. That's nice, you know. You know, she says to me, can we just go do this? She says, I just like being with you. You don't have to do anything. just want to be with you. She likes just being with me. Isn't that nice? Isn't that great? We don't have to do, I don't have to do anything to super impress her. I just got to hang with her, and she's real happy with that. She just likes being with me. You know, we love going on road trips. I can drive for two hours, and neither one of us can talk, and she's just happy. And I'm happy. We're just happy to be in each other's presence. Do you know, a lot of times with God, we just got to learn something. We can just sit with God and say, hey, I'm just happy to be in your presence. I don't need to tell you anything. I don't need to demand anything. I don't need to carry on. I don't... You already know how I feel about you. I'm just going to enjoy you. I just want to sit in your presence, Lord. I just want to live with you every single moment of every single day. I just want to enjoy you. You know, if somebody says something bad about you, I want to stand up for you. I don't like that. Hey, don't do that. You're talking about my best friend here, right? Okay. Do you know David, you know, they were going to bring the ark to, with him into the wilderness. David goes, no, 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 go put it back. He says, if God is for me, I'll be back here. What's David saying? I'll get back to worshiping there. But David says, I don't need the external things of life to sustain my faith. I can be in the wilderness, just me and God, and it'll be okay. Isn't that powerful? Now, that doesn't mean there's no need for external things. I'm not suggesting that thought. All I'm saying is we don't need it ultimately. We just need God. Now, now having said that, let me go back and say this. You know, listen to what David says. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. It's funny, you know, last night I was sharing this in the morning. <laughs> I went to bed at a reasonably decent time, like 10, 10.30. Woke up at 2.30, no more sleep. You know, so I just thought, okay, fine. I'm just going to lay here. I'm just going to... Focus on the good life that God's blessed me with. I just sat, said, Lord, first of all, it's my anniversary right now. Thank you. I gave me this amazing woman that loves me, likes to be with me. That's great. Thank you. 40 years. Stood by my side, went through all kinds of nutty things with me, and, you know, hung in there and didn't say, oh, you got to quit the ministry. It's getting too hard. She never said that one time, you know. I remember one time I was really discouraged, and I said, I'm so sorry, I, I led us in this direction. She goes, what do you mean? We did it together, and we believed God was in it. That was the end of the conversation. I never had her going, well, you messed up, you know, blaming me for the way life is turning out. Never had that experience. That's a good woman. You see? I appreciate that. 
Because, you know, you're going to all have low points in life, and it's so easy to blame each other. And isn't that what people do? Start blaming one another. Why? You know, why do that? It's counterproductive, folks. Destroys your relationships. So I'm just sitting there. I'm going, Lord, what an amazing thing. You call me to preach your word. What a great joy. You guys pay me to study. Isn't this amazing? Something I love doing. I just love learning about who God is. I just delight in doing that. And then I get a chance to speak these words to you. And then I get these beautiful relationships with such amazing people. Do you know the most amazing people on this planet are God's people? And I've met them all over the globe from every different ethnic background. I go, thank you, Lord. What a privilege. You know, why don't we focus in on all the good things God does for us? You know what we tend to do? We focus in on our problems. David wasn't doing that. And then he says, because you're my help, I'll sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Hey, if God's holding you up, who's going to put you down? If God be for you, who can be against you? Isn't that true? You know, David, I think one of the great blessings of coming to the house of God, how many know this actually stimulates and encourages you to enjoy God's presence? How many know that happens? But you know what I notice? I notice it's interesting that when people are straying away from God in their hearts and they're spiritually drifting, they lose their desire for the house of God. How many kind of notice that? Anybody notice that? And can I just say a comment so that you'll really understand this? You know backsliding, we talk about that? That doesn't happen when people stop coming to church. It happens while we're sitting in the pews. Okay, why does that happen? Because God is not our desire, and He's not our delight. Okay? And you know, when I make critical remarks about my brothers and sisters, and sometimes, you know, God's people are a little different. Have you noticed that? We are peculiar people. Has anybody noticed that? You know, I don't pick God's family. As a pastor, I don't even pick who comes here. I just go, God, these are your children. I'm going to love on them because you love on them. As a matter of fact, I think when we become like God, we start loving the things God loves. And one of the things God loves is his people, right? And we're all different. And it's so beautiful, the diversity and all the major different things people bring to the equation. But most of us are so insecure, we're threatened by people. We should actually delight. And when people do well, we should rejoice with them. And when people are going through a difficult time, we should weep with them. Isn't that what the Scriptures teach us? Of course. Okay. Do you know it was hunger that brought the prodigal back to the the father's house? It wasn't when he had a bunch of money in his pocket and he was having a great time. As a matter of fact, I read that once he had squandered all of his wealth and he was sitting there lusting after the pig's food, the Bible says he came to himself and he realized... You know what? I need to be in the Father's house. He was hungry. And when he was hungry, that's when he began to learn about true satisfaction. You and I need those experiences in life. But let me move on to my third point. It's real brief. Three elements that reflect happiness and satisfaction in our life. Making God our desire. Making God our delight. Making God our defense. Because remember, I use that word hased. It really, when you read about it, it's all about deliverance. It's all about personal deliverance in our life. How many know life brings many challenges, difficult situations, difficult people? Come on now. Yeah, they're there. Isn't that true? You know, we're not fighting a battle with flesh and blood. We have a spiritual foe. You know, where do we turn to in such times? You know what David says? It's not going to prevail. He says, those who want to kill me, they're going to be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. We get so uptight. You know, people, somebody's saying this about me, Pastor. So what? Let them talk. 
You know? Yeah, but they're not telling the truth about me. So what? Let them talk. You know? If you're living the truth, don't worry about lies. Lives have a short shelf life, folks. You know, I know I've told the story before, but when I was going to Bible college, years ago, I was working in a restaurant, working my way through school, you know? And while I was working there, I ended up, you know, going to school in the morning, and I'd come to work in the afternoons, cook lunch, you know, cook dinner. And I was working with this guy named Ken. Ken, I knew, was going to become a Christian. You go, how do you know that? Well, his mother, first of all, he told me, my grandmother's a Christian. I go, good, praying grandmother, you know. Number two, he says, yeah, my sister's a Christian. She's married to a pastor. Well, that's good. That just tells me. He's got people praying for him. And you know what they're praying? Because they're not around him. They're saying, Lord, help Ken get saved. And they're also praying, Lord, bring somebody into Ken's life. That was me. I was an answer to their prayers. See, I understood that. How many know you can actually understand what God's doing? You know, it's great. And you know when you're young, and I was, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty passionate. Anybody figured this out yet? I'm passionate about God's Word. So when I'm learning, I get really excited. And I come to work, I'm so excited about learning something neat about God. Got to tell somebody. Hey, Ken, guess what about, you know, he goes, I don't believe in that stuff. You know, this is a conversation that went on for a couple of years. But meanwhile, Ken is wearing down. Because I can see he's changing his attitude and a whole bunch of items because we've had this discussion, you know. He's moving towards God all the time. I'm going, just a matter of time. Ken's going to get saved. You know, I'm praying for him. His grandma's praying for him. His sister's praying for him. His brother-in-law's praying for him. I go, boy, this guy's going to give his life to Christ. Meanwhile, you know, God has real good sense of humor. Meanwhile, there was two waitresses that were backslidden, working with us. And they were getting convicted. Because while we were cooking, they were listening to the conversation. They'd come and pick up food. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God goes, zing, zing, zing. You know, they were getting zapped. They didn't like that. You know? And how many know that when you're not walking with God, and you're not being empowered by God, you're being controlled by the other side, the dark side. And so the, these two waitresses come to my boss and say, you know, Paul's not doing his job. All he does is talk about God. He's not doing his work. The unfortunate part for those girls were they didn't realize I worked in the morning. I came on Saturdays, cooked breakfast, cooked lunch, cooked dinner, worked 13 hours. Sabine, I understand all about hard work and cooking. I cleaned the restaurant afterwards. My boss liked me. He actually worked with me, and we cooked together. And I'm, you know what? I may be talking, but I'm working at a high speed, and he knows. And he told me one day, he says, I love it when you work. I said, why is that? He goes, I always make more money when you're working. Because I was moving so fast, food was coming up so quickly, the tables were turning over far faster. This was a very busy restaurant. He goes, I love it when you work here. We make more money. So these poor waitresses are thinking, I'm not doing my job. My boss is thinking, I'm making more money when this guy is here. I don't, he, 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 even he, I was sharing even with him. So he knows what I'm like. He knows they're going to get a little God talk, and he has to deal with it too. You know, I can tell, you know, he's having a hard time at times, but, you know, I'm pretty sensitive. But he's getting it too. You know why I'm, pr- I'm doing that to him? Because his mom and dad are Christians. And, and you know what? And I know he's, he's resisting God. Okay, so I'm working to all these guys because I think I'm an answer to God's prayer, these people's prayers, right? You know, so they, eventually they tell him, you've got to get rid of Paul. He's a problem. He got so tired of hearing that, he fired them. He fired them, okay? Meanwhile, Ken's telling me, these guys are against you. They're trying to get you fired. I said, whatever. Because you see, the restaurant's not my source. God's my source. So God protects me. He showed me his has said love. He delivered me. They were fired. Oh, but that's not the end of the story. Two months later, they show up. They come in to eat. They said, listen, can we just take a minute of your time? I said, yeah, not a problem. 
So they come over and they said, listen, we have to ask for your forgiveness. I go, well, what? They said, yeah, we were trying to get you fired. We got fired. And you know what? We were so convicted. And God's spirit began to deal with us. And we gave our hearts back to Christ. We got restored in our relationship with God. And we said, brother, would you forgive us? I said, absolutely. Gave a big hug, right? Yay. Isn't that good? Well, listen, God says he will silence the mouth of those that are against us. But let me close with the final story. I was reading it this morning. King Asa, godly king. Ten years, absolute shalom, peace, rest in the kingdom. Eleventh year, major problem. A one million army contingency comes against him with 300 chariots. Asa, you know, he's smart enough to go, we're outgunned and outmanned. Or he thinks a little differently. Instead of focusing on the problem, though he has a problem. How many know you got an army going to come in and wipe you out? That's a problem. But look where his head is at. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there was no one like you to help us, the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against... That's interesting. He didn't say, Lord, against us. He said, against you. Do you know why? Because he understood something. Here's what he understood. When you attack God's people, you're attacking God. How many go, wow. Remember when they were pers- Paul was persecuting the Christians? He had a little meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. What did Jesus say to him? Why are you persecuting me? Do not touch God's children, or you'll find yourself fighting God. Now, I don't know about you. I like being God's kid. I go, you know, I always feel sorry when people start messing with me. I go, that's not going to go good for them. That's how my mind immediately works. I don't, I don't get mad at them. I just go, ooh, don't do that. You go, Pastor, you think like that? I go, absolutely. I start praying for them. I'm going, don't touch me, because you're going to get hurt. That's what's going to happen to you. And I've watched it over the years. People have come after me. I've had people threaten me. I've had people try to kill me. I'm not even exaggerating. And it doesn't go good for them. They end up in the psych unit, a lot of them. I'm serious. So I'm just saying, guys, girls, listen to me. If God be for us, who can be against us? Isn't that great? Let's stand tonight. You know, as I was thinking about this message, I was going... How many are getting a sense, i got to make God the pursuit, the passion, the desire, the delight, and recognize he's the defense of my life? How many see it? How many think it's amazing that David, in a major crisis in his life, isn't focusing in on, I'm going to die. I feel rejected by my own kid. Now he's not focusing on that. That's what we do. David goes, no, God, I'm focused on you. And right now, with every head bowed, You're in a problem right now. How many here right now? Just raise your hand. I got trouble. I got difficulty in my life. I got problems. Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. That's you. I'm going to pray with you tonight. I want you to think about this. Think about what's being said here. Take your mind off that problem right now. I want you to put it squarely on Almighty God. I want you to know you are His beloved, the 
apple of his eye. You're his kid. Listen to what Jesus said. If you're a child of God tonight, listen to what he says to us. When you pray, what are you supposed to say? Father. The Holy Spirit inside of us cries out and says what? Abba. Daddy. Daddy, I have a problem. I can't handle this. It's way beyond my scope. But you know what? I know one thing. You love me. You have said, I'm going to appeal to your unfailing, unconditional love. I'm going to appeal to your power. I know this may seem impossible. It's impossible to me, but with God, all things are possible. You can heal the sick. Lord, you can deliver my kid. Lord, you can provide the finances that I so desperately need in Christmas time. Lord, you can heal my, my friend, my, my aunt, my uncle, my father, my grandparent. Lord, you hear the cry of the desperate and the needy. God is going to hear that cry tonight. Just lift your heart to him. Let your spirit ascend to him and say, Father, would you come to this place in my life? I'm turning this over to you. I'm not going to fret. I'm not going to stew. I'm not going to, you know, be full of anxiety. I'm not going to, you know, build a mountain here, Lord. My eyes are on you. I can look back in the past. I can see what you've done for your children. Oh, Lord, you can shut mouths of lions. You can keep the fire from destroying your children. Lord, walls can come down right now. Lord, it's amazing what you can do. I'm entrusting you right now in this situation. And I'm receiving this in great encouragement. Your amazing love. And I just thank you for that right now. I'm letting it go. You know what? My enemies, I entrust them to you. I feel sorry for them, Father. Show them mercy. Show them mercy, God. I better pray for them, for you to show them mercy because I know if they touch me, they're going to suffer. That's what's going to happen. And I don't want that. I want them to be redeemed. I want them to experience grace. I want transformation to come into their life, Lord. I just thank you tonight. You're hearing the cry of the human heart, Father. You will not despise those of a broken and a contrite spirit. Your word declares that. You're hearing the cry of your children tonight, Father. And I'm praying that miracles are being released tonight. You're sending your angels right now to help the heirs of salvation. Father, I believe before we called, you have the answer on its way. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen Amen and amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.